Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are taking up the topic of pastoral authority. Now, we have talked about the job of both pastors and congregations in a previous episode, and two episodes, in fact, and in the one on what is not the job of a pastor, we did talk in some ways about pastoral authority. But for various reasons, I wanted to dig deeper into this one today. So the first reason is that, um, no doubt greatly accelerated by the stresses of the pandemic, I have been hearing reports of pastors peeling out of the ministry, that um, all of the the fault lines and unaddressed issues and challenges and pains have simply become overwhelming and good pastors, faithful pastors, pastors who under other circumstances would rather go on being pastors are just not able to do it anymore. So that is a super disturbing trend. And um, incidentally, uh, dear listener, if you are one of those, I would and dad would love to hear from you so we can get a better handle on what's going on here and maybe generate some ideas for helping if this is a thing to be helped. Um, Also, but uh, rather less direly, um, I have just uh, written a book. Um, I don't know if it will be out by the time this episode airs. Maybe it will already be out. We will let you know in the show notes. Um, Called To Baptize or Not To Baptize, A Practical Guide for Clergy, which is a short theology of baptism followed by nearly 50 case studies. Uh, We'll say more about that in a bonus episode. But when I gave Dad a first draft to look at, um, one of his major um, criticisms was that I had not taken up the specific issue of the pastoral authority to baptize um, in the sense of both the obligation and command of God to go forth and baptize all nations, um, but also how that plays out in the actual discernment process and working with with, um, people as they come forward for baptism. And gosh darn it, I hadn't really realized it. I'd never thought deeply about the issue before. And since then, it's been very much on my mind. So today I'm going to be kind of thinking out loud about matters of pastoral authority and, as usual, turn to my father, pastor, and mentor to uh, guide me through it. Well, we'll work on it together, Sarah. It's a, it's a really become an acute issue, I think, today, uh, the way pastors... Uh, kind of find themselves torn to pieces by countervailing forces intersecting upon the um, life of the congregation over which they are to preside with the word and sacraments of Christ. So I think it's a timely topic. I have to even say to you, you know, I'm kind of dealing with the issue of peeling out myself at this juncture in my career. I just had a a lovely talk with my bishop in the Virginia Synod. Uh, My call all these years has been to teach theology at Roanoke College. It's a call issued by the Synod Council of the Virginia Synod. So with my impending retirement as of the end of August, my calling uh, from the Virginia Synod, therefore, to uh, that position expires. Now what? And uh, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll save commentary about my p- personal situation, but I think I can simply say at this point the temptation to just abandon ship and peel out is uh, very real also for me. Oh, 
I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, that's, well, there you go, folks, uh, living proof of uh, how acute this issue is becoming. I suppose I ought to just say also that I am not coming to this issue because I am particularly under siege. In fact, I am regularly astonished at what a lovely congregation I'm serving and how happy I am being there. So this does not come out of my personal need to, um, you know, assert or reclaim or whatever my own pastoral authority. Uh, but I, you know, I have my ear to the ground and am disturbed by what I hear. Um, but I have to say this too. Dad, I remember when I took my American church history class in seminary, I discovered that every generation of pastors, probably back to, I don't know, Peter and Paul has complained that the ministry don't get no respect no more. And <laughs> um, I particularly read it in American clergy writing in the 1700s and the 1800s and the 1900s. So <laughs> so I suppose the question is worth asking, just give it in maybe just in your own life experience. Do you perceive an actual difference in how pastors are treated by their um, the people above them or by their congregations or by each other or by society at large? Or is this just another phase of um, just clergy being irritated that they don't get the respect they want? You know, I think I want to try to give a nuanced answer to that. Um, I can remember uh, as a child growing up in a parsonage, uh, the reverence, respect bordering on reverence that was showed to my father, the pastor, uh, uh, by a great uh, number of the people in the congregation. I can also remember that they kept him poor in order to keep him humble, <laughs> if I can put it that way. You know, uh, not really. I mean, I think they probably did try to support him to the best of their ability and so forth. But I think as um, another member of our family often observes, when pastors um, were uh, relatively poor, they fully identified with their communities and were greatly respected for that. In my generation, the professionalization of the ministry occurred, and we're all very grateful that we haven't been uh, treated so badly financially um, in this past generation. Uh, but I think with that has gone a real profound transformation in the self-understanding of the pastoral vocation. Uh, if you want to be upwardly mobile and middle class, something happens to the pastoral vocation in the process. Those are just my observations in the in the moment. Okay, well, that's actually a good transition, especially the observation about the ministry becoming professionalized, because I am going to advance a complex hypothesis here, and I don't frankly know exactly how to test it, except that um, if it seems to have explanatory power um, for pastors, but as we'll see, I'm going to propose that this is actually a piece of a larger social trend. So um, I'm going to work through the steps of this, Dad, and feel free to interject a comment at any time. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so I think this actually, this also really also springs out of the conflict we talked a few episodes back between rationalism and empiricism and how to ground human knowledge and action. So what I perceive is that in Western culture, there has been a growing distrust of human judgment. And you can see it on both sides, like for the, the rationalist side, which we've, uh, you know, aligned with 
critical social theory. There's a sense that we're so corrupt and biased and it's language all the way down. And, you know, we just, we, we make reality the way we think it, but um, obviously we're so deeply corrupt that our judgment is unreliable. And then on the empiricist side, you have a suspicion of human judgment because, you know, we are storytelling creatures and so we get caught up in narratives, but actually you need to have scientific testing and you need to isolate variables and you need to prove things. And that's where real human judgment comes about. So these two, for their own reasons, distrust of the human act of judgment have infiltrated to such an extent that our cultural response has been to in in fear and anxiety of the errors of human judgment to continually outsource judgment. So, I mean, I think you see this uh, very anciently already in in uh, cultures creating regulations, uh, codifying laws and multiplying those laws that need to be kept. Um, but there's something that happens at scale, I think, in modernity. And I think there's, uh, I would just like to flag, there is a true issue when you have a population explosion the way we have, and you suddenly have millions, billions of people and um, governments that need to figure out how to manage all these people and we're no longer living at the size of a tribe or a town. So there is a real thing to be faced there. But what happens is this movement to distrust and outsource human judgment goes from the you know communal regulations to the, the impersonal bureaucracy. And now I think what's completely... I want to use a strong word here, but we don't have a profanity label here. But let's say severely messed up our society, especially in the past 10 to 15 years, is that this outsourcing of human judgment has taken a further step to AI and algorithms. And I think people still do not have any idea how much their perception of reality is not by what they they naturally see and react to when they're online. It's what is being delivered to them. And it is being delivered not by a cabal of you know humans in a smoke-filled room, but by an impersonal algorithm that was nevertheless generated by humans. That's a very, very excellent analysis. I have some comments, but go, go ahead, finish your thought. Uh, that was, I was going to the next thought, so go ahead. Okay, you know, why distrust human judgment? You know, again, I, I hate, to, hate to keep harping back to this, but that's exactly the impasse with which the philosophy of the high enlightenment came to a conclusion in Immanuel Kant's third critique, the critique of judgment. And fundamentally, this was a problem that Kant admitted he could not solve. He could not solve the problem of judgment. Uh, he said, you know, basically, I, I'm being caricaturing a little bit, but basically he's saying it comes down to a well-grounded aesthetic intuition. <laughs> you know, you can't, if you have good taste, you make good judgments. <laughs> uh, but, but there's no rational way of saying that the judgments uh, are are uh, valid in the way Kant thought he had validated uh, scientific knowledge in the first critique and um, moral knowledge in the second critique. But in the third critique, he kind of just throws up his hands and says there is this gap between the subject and the object that cannot be bridged, and you simply have to use your normative ideas to make a synthesis that cannot be called knowledge. 
And that's what judgment is. Wow, I had no idea. But yeah, so this is a really, really deep problem. And I think the problem is the only way to solve the question of judgment is by judgment. And so you you right. don't get to appeal to some external objective authority who's going to tell you bureaucratically or, you know, in a code of whatever that you've gotten to the right answer, that the whole point is that it finally does end with human judgment. What, what falls out of the picture, though, Sarah, and scholars like Alistair McIntyre have reminded of us, and Hans-George Gadamer, for that matter, have reminded us that what falls out of the picture with the High Enlightenment and Kant's philosophy is tradition. Right, Much right, of right. the moral common sense of the human community is carried by tradition. And when tradition itself then becomes the object of a ferocious attack, Gadamer called it the prejudgment against prejudgments, as if you could live a day of your life without prejudgments. You know, you have a vast repertoire of prejudgments. Uh, for example, shooting heroin is probably a bad idea for your health, though you've never tried heroin for yourself. <laughs> That's a prejudgment, isn't it? It's not something you've empirically tested on your own. So tradition falls out of the picture, and in its place comes this bureaucratic rationalization of life that you were referring to. And I would just like to point out at the outset that always spawns the reactionary opposition, which is the Pied Piper syndrome of charismatic authority. So you have Max Weber described this, this iron cage of modernity in which the bureaucracy assumes control over human life and, and human life can't be controlled and it, it rages against the iron cage until along comes a Pied Piper who leads the masses to disaster and therefore the need for bureaucratic control is reinforced in an awful cycle. Wow, that's like the 20th century right there. And yeah. um, probably a great deal of the 21st. Well, that's I find that uh, extremely insightful and helpful. And, you know, let's just say, yes, traditions have big problems. And yes, humans make huge errors of judgment. I do not want to argue with that point. But the problem is that it's just assumed, well, let's toss out human judgment and tradition and then things will be fine. And things are so not fine precisely because, you know, Dad, I remember some years ago you, you told me you finally caught the point of Jesus' parents that's it's the weird one about how there's a demon in the house and it's exorcised but then nothing is put in the empty house and it just stands empty and then the demon comes back and says hey it's still empty i'm going to move back in and bring seven more demons with it <laughs> and right. he said you know that that's exactly it you can't just cast out what was wrong before unless you are going to fill it up with something positive to take its place and i think that you know this is just one talking about this replacing tradition with bureaucracy or um, human judgment with AI um, is exactly that. Yes, we, we correctly identified that there was a demon, but all we have done is now there are eight demons dwelling in the house instead of just one. Very good. Okay, so let me further say, I keep saying the word judgment like it's a good thing. <laughs> 
So I just wanted to say that I am not talking about judgmentalism. There is a sense now, I find, that people do not distinguish between judgment and judgmentalism, even though we are all constantly making judgments and relying on our judgment to guide us through life through, you know, practically every moment of the day. You know, judgmentalism is is the the one demon that we've tried to get rid of. I think what I would like to do is is promote, like if I could I don't know. I'm not on Twitter, but like hashtag judiciousness. I know that will never catch on, but uh, judiciousness is an extremely valuable quality to have and practice to put into your life is to be able to be judicious about the many things around you rather than judgmental. Those are actually two very different things. You're right about that, Sarah. And I I can add a footnote to that. I know that the uh, term equity has become a buzzword. Uh, a political buzzword. Instead of equality, we want equity. Uh, And I don't intend at all uh, to endorse that buzzword. But I want to point out that what you're calling judiciousness is what Martin Luther called uh, the Latin term equitas. It begins with a diphthong, A-E, equitas. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Equity. And the biographer, the secular biographer, H.G. Haley, uh, lifted up uh, Luther's uh, concern with equity, especially when it came to legal philosophy, political philosophy. And he he talked about the need for magistrates or judges, uh, not simply to mechanically apply the law. That would be more like the bureaucratic regulation that you were criticizing earlier but that judges need to take full account of the context of the uh, offending behavior and apply the law with equity, which would be a way of saying what you're saying with judiciousness, so that the the crime uh, is proportionately punished for the purpose of deterrence and for the possible reform of the offender. Uh, and not uh, mechanically without respect to uh, uh, human judgment. See, I mean, that's exactly it. I can imagine people responding to that with like, yes, that's exactly what we need. And no way you're going to let someone's future depend on a, a judge who maybe, you know, you know, they've, they've done studies about like if you uh, if your parole hearing comes up right before lunchtime, you're much less likely to get it because supposedly the judge is hungry and cranky or something <laughs> like <laughs> You know, and, and that, but I mean, that that's exactly it. That That's where it is, is do you think we're better off with the judgment of humans, which is a living thing, which therefore is subject to its, its you know, bigotries and human personal physical circumstances? Or would you rather have an, an unfeeling, unliving set of codifications that are applied without any respect to context to all people? And so what I think has happened is I think we have been trained to be far more frightened of the first case of the human judge with human fallibilities and way too trustful of the regulations and the bureaucracy and the AI, uh, if we even see them going on at all. Right. And, yeah. um, and, you know, it's just it's just I mean, the obvious point here is it only removes the problem one step because who writes the laws, who writes up the bureaucratic regulations, who designs the, the AI algorithms and, and so forth. It's still human judgment. And, you know, I, I don't want to go into details, but, you know, I've already been hearing terrible things about um, AI misjudgments in like um, 
surveillance of faces for looking for people with criminal records and uh, just um, uh, what do you call it? Blood curdling <laughs> things like this going on. So it's still humans, and we're just basically fooling ourselves if we think that we're eliminating the problem by saying, "Well, I'm sorry, ma'am, you didn't fill in paper DZ12-10, and therefore, you know, I I can't get your son out of prison, or you know, whatever the the thing is going right, to be." Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Sarah, two comments quickly. Uh, one of the shows I like to watch on the Discovery Channel is called Northwoods Law, and it's a documentary of Maine and New Hampshire game wardens and how they do their policing work uh, in those uh, northern states of the U.S. up in the wild northern country. Uh, and I've always been impressed in these, how when they catch an offender, uh they treat the investigation with a great deal of judiciousness. Uh, Was this an intentional poacher? Was this a stupid mistake? Was it a youthful mistake? Was it ignorance of the law? And they go through, and and is the the offender or uh, accused uh, being forthright and honest with us? Is he cooperating or is he resisting and lying to us? And all these calculations come into their judgment about whether to issue a warning or issue a fine or what level of a fine. So there I think I'm seeing an example of the kind of judiciousness uh, that that you're recommending. Maybe it's possible because it's it's not such a high-stakes thing as policing human beings uh, for crimes against other human beings. You're talking about crimes... Uh, against the the game regulations, which may be of a lower order of intensity and so forth. I don't know. Just a comment. Yeah, well, so that's actually a, a great connection to make because what, what finally flipped the switch for me is that what I perceive happening in the gutting of pastoral authority is actually just one piece of this much larger crisis in these, let's say, vocations of judgment, that these actually are jobs in which it's not just that you you do the work, but you form the character, you internalize the tradition, and then in real life, real time, with other real people, you have to make the judgment call. And so the pastoral ministry is not the only one. I mean, I think this is a huge issue with the police. And I, I don't want to get into the whole thing here, but I would just make the observation that people are also peeling out of the police force and recruiting the kind of people you want in the police force is becoming increasingly difficult because there is this perception that we're not getting a fair deal either. And we nothing, no mistake in judgment I ever make will will be forgiven or understood in context. Um, you know, and th- this is not to defend police who who shoot innocent victims or anything, but, you know, it is a, a dangerous, high-stakes environment where judgment has to be trained and judgment can make mistakes. Again, what's the alternative that um, we have cameras surveilling every moment of our lives and then who who's the people watching the cameras and deciding who to haul off an arrest? It, it still, it doesn't remove the issue. Or I think you, you mentioned judges earlier. I mean, thank God we still have judges, but I suddenly 
in thinking about this, had a new appreciation for the the office and vocation of judge because we have, you know, infinite legislation on the books by now. But it's the judge who hopefully, you know, doing the job as best he or she can is going to make that be like the legal equivalent of a living word, you know, that actually speaks to this particular circumstance of crime or not crime, as the case may be. And I think um, I've heard it from teachers, too, that more and more the, you know, um, elementary high school teaching is being hyper bureaucratized. There are curriculums that you have to teach, that you have to fill in the certain amount of paperwork, the the initiative and authority of teachers to be able to work with their particular community and their interests and their own gifts and what they see with their children is increasingly removed from them. We see it in doctors who have to um, practice according to what their malpractice insurance says, what the HMO will allow, what pharma is pushing on them. The idea of a doctor who you actually have a long-term personal relationship with, who would visit you at home, who knows your your family tradition and history and can speak to that. I mean, that's, that's I mean, again, I think most people have outsourced their own medical care because they just don't have that kind of living relationship with a doctor anymore. And I, I can't imagine that most doctors any more than police officers or judges or teachers love this state of affairs. And, you know, I even wonder to what extent, um, business and academia now are fundamentally not run by entrepreneurs or thinkers, but by HR departments who have determined, you know, <laughs> what has to be done. So I, so anyway, I'm just saying this all because if this is true, this is a much huger social problem than pastors don't get no respect no more. But also I would encourage pastors to to talk to people in these, let's as I've said, vocations of judgment and try to think through, uh, you know, across the vocations, how to speak about these kind of vocations and how to reclaim them from the, the AI and the bureaucracy. You know, Sarah, another way of making that point would be to say that pastoral authority is a learned art. It's it's something that you uh, acquire um, in the practice of making a series of judgments, step by step by step, and in a context in which you learn from experience. Uh, I remember when my father was long retired, I asked him if he had any regrets about the terminology we're using today, judgments he has made as a pastor. And he thought about that and, you know, he mentioned some things. But then he said, you know, the biggest regret I have was a a boy in the congregation in my my age group graduated uh, from high school with him. And he uh, became engaged uh, to a Roman Catholic girl. And they came to him and asked him to officiate at their wedding. And that was that Missouri Synod legalism that was still in the back of his head, that he could not officiate at a mixed marriage, even though the couple had come to him and asked him to perform the wedding in the Lutheran church. And he if he had been thinking better about it, he could have said this is a wonderful opportunity for premarital counseling and bringing up the questions of the future of the faith. They ended up going uh, uh, to the next town over and joining the uh, LCA church uh, where they got married and, and so forth. And, and, and he really thought that he blew it because instead of making a concrete judgment 
In view of the actual facts of the case in front of him, he fell back upon a legalistic a rule from the from his own church bureaucracy, I suppose you could say. Oh, you know, that's interesting. And it probably reflects some of the change in the times because um, some regrets I have, this is not as a pastor, but as a friend was, um, this was earlier when I was in my, my 20s, um, let's just say a couple of romantic pairings that had severe impediments to them. And um, I bought into the the lovers, um, you know, uh, love conquers all and the disasters that followed in their wake. <laughs> that was a time mm. where listening to the weight of tradition that said, well, you know, what are the chances that this couple really is exceptional and that therefore all these other considerations can be tossed out the window? Um, so I would, you know, <laughs> maybe that's the, the misjudgment more likely to come uh, two generations after the one that your father made. Yeah, right. Well, I just want to say one one last point on, on this whole harangue I've been unfolding here. But I, I think one final really practical problem is that there are way more stories told and easier to tell about corrupt human judgments. Um, and we respond to them powerfully and we love them. And we're still really hooked on this, you know, liberating ourselves from like dark, benighted, um, bigoted, whatever. Um, but there are far fewer stories that are really effective and like grip our souls that are about fighting the bureaucracy, you know, or right. or overcoming the computers. I mean, there are a few like Kafka is famous for for being the first one to narrate the absurdity of bureaucracy. And there are movies like um, Brazil, a, a Terry Gilliam weird fantasy about um, one letter being wrong on a piece of paper and the disaster it spawns for multiple people. And or The Matrix, of course, that's the famous one about, um, you know, being at the mercy of the computers. And but relatively speaking, those are much fewer. It's it's much harder to capture and narrate and inspire, you know, pushback <laughs> narratively than it is against. It's it's ironic actually. It's because human judges are, in the broad sense, are single creatures. We can imagine how to fight them. But how do you fight an algorithm? Delete your apps off your smartphone. But that's that's the genius of bureaucracy, Sarah that you can infinitely defer responsibility. Yes. Whenever you say, where does the buck stop? The bureaucrat can always say that someone else or something else or some regulation or some or whatever. I'm just doing my job. And this should really deeply disturb us uh, to refer to Hannah Arendt's book on Eichmann, Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she pointed out the banality of evil, how banal evil is. The Holocaust happened in Nazi Germany because countless tens of thousands of ordinary German bureaucrats doing their daily slog at the office, scheduling transports, arranging for ship shipments of Zyklon B gas, etc., etc. The logistics of the Holocaust were exercised by a vast bureaucratic network over which Eichmann presided. And everyone could go at home at night and wash their hands and say, I did an honest day's work today. I don't think about the purposes or the results because I'm only doing my duty. The infinite deferral of responsibility. 
not to um you know get too exercised about this, but uh, people listening, it's always on you. <laughs> like don't don't just keep deferring the responsibility yourself in, in whatever vocation you exercise. Okay, well let's actually talk now about pastors <laughs> and um uh, what what pastor pastoral authority is and can be. And so you know just for the the immediate circumstances. As I see it, pastors kind of feel squeezed from two directions. So one is going to be from um, the congregation. And, you know, congregations do occasionally have genuine bad actors in them. And we've both seen that happen more often than we would like. And and that's its its own kind of fight. But I think in a, in a, a less pernicious way, um, it, it's no longer just um, self-evident what the nature of pastoral authority is. And so ordinary Christians, you know, who, who don't think about this, you know, 24-7 like we do, are just going to naturally import other models of what ministry is. And so, like, you know, I remember hearing a story once of a pastor whose congregation expected her to be in her office at church from 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, because that's what working people do. Like, you know, what else would you be doing but sitting in your office? And like, <laughs> this is so bizarre to me in so many ways. But, you know, that that was the model they had of what work was like. Um, or there are models where um, you are uh, their religious hired hand. And so it's, it's usually a, a smaller group within the congregation. They expect you to be their personal chaplain and at, at their beck and call at all times, um, serving their needs whenever they want them at the drop of a hat. So you end up spending all your time as a pastor attending to these high maintenance members of the congregation who see you as their private chaplain. I mean, th- those are just two possibilities. Have you seen other faulty models from the congregation? Um, impose themselves on the pastor? Yeah, I, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. The, the absolute lack of catechesis of, of, of teaching on what the ministry is leaves this power vacuum in the congregation. Now, we have a beautiful installation ordination rite in which the lay people go around with the Bible and say, teach and preach the word of God and go to the baptismal fount, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and go to the altar, uh, preside over the Holy Communion. And so the liturgy, that liturgy actually lifts up uh, the task and authority of the pastor, who is to minister to the word and sacraments, uh, and in this way to, uh, uh, as the Augsburg Confession puts it, govern the people of God with the gospel. Uh, so the so certainly anyone in a position of authority or government, including the pastor in the congregation, is going to constantly be involved in making judgments. But the judgments the pastor actually makes to govern the congregation with the gospel are going to be unintelligible if these other kinds of management business models and so forth of leadership are being what's what's tacitly assumed in the heads of the of the congregants. Yeah, I, I just realized another major one there is fundraiser, that that is the principal job of the pastor is to get more money. Or recruit members. Yeah. Right. Right. Even though we don't really know why we need the money or the members, because we've lost sight of what the mission is. But yeah, that's that's usually an assumption there. Right. 
And I think then from the other direction, I suppose this really depends very much on what denomination you're in and the nature of its um, relationship to its congregations. But there's also a squeeze from above. It just seems to be inherent in denominations. And I don't know if this is part of the American business culture, but that denominations fundamentally want to be a franchise and they, you know, they have their headquarters and then they generate the content, which then they expect all of their outposts, like, you know, a McDonald's to offer the new sandwich or something, you know, like here's, here's our latest intervention, our, our uh, social justice claim, our new um, Bible tract, you know, whatever it is in your particular thing, moral issue of the day. And, um, you know, because denominations fundamentally regulate the at least um, seminary and ordination process to get you in there, and then they have a certain amount of power over your call and your mobility between calls and so forth, there is an expect an expectation that you will be an obedient little toady and you will promote what they want you to promote. And um, it is my observation, again, regardless of the denomination, that generally uh, word and sacrament are not the things that most interest people who run church bureaucracies. They have lots of other agendas, but the basic work of the congregation is usually the last thing on their mind. Yeah, I'm afraid there's a lot of truth to that. And I'll I'll say this much. I, I mean, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but I've been saying this for 30 years, going back to the formation of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, that it deliberately abolished the ministerium. The ministerium was the older model, especially in the LCA tradition, uh, for the governance of the church. When the those ordained to the word and sacrament ministry met as a separate body, and they were the ones who deliberated ethical, moral, uh, and theological questions. And so that was kind of like the Senate uh, that ruled the, uh, the, the denomination. The ELCA abolished that. Uh, with its quota system. And to this day, even though we have bishops in name, I say we have bishops in name only. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't even elect them like we elect pastors to indefinite calls. We elect them like politicians, and so they've got to run for re-election constantly. You think that doesn't partisanize and politicize the office? Guess again. Uh, And then Ironically, if you get close to a bishop and they, you know, let their hair down and they talk to you about their actual work, they will tell you, and this is liberal bishops, moderate bishops, conservative bishops, I've talked with all of them, and they will all say the same thing. You know, we really don't have any authority in this church at all. The whole church (laughs) is run by Chicago. It's run by the church council, and uh, we only have advisory powers And we have been so diminished and diluted in the course of these 30 or 40 years that there's no unity, theological or moral unity among us bishops. So we couldn't act as a body even if we wanted to. Wow. Well, let me just say, you know, again, there may well be 
deliberate bad actors who who occupy those offices in, in Chicago and elsewhere. And in other, I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to single out ours, ours only, but I think it's the nature of the beast when, like what you've just said, is you shift human judgment from the individual human actors with a vocational call to it over to a bureaucratic system. And a denomination is functionally a bureaucracy, an ecclesiastical bureaucracy. So right. I would think even the people going into those positions with the best will in the world are just going to be corrupted by it because it is a corrupting force. And and in a again, in this banal way, not in this, you know, smoke-filled room kind of way. I mean, God, I wish it was a smoke-filled room. That would be way more interesting and you could actually do something with it. But, you know, you you, you can't fight against this pointless drift. And, you know, and, and the same thing, I'm, I'm struck by that all bishops are, are agreed on this uh, loss of, of power they have. But, you know, the same thing, synod assemblies are not real places of, of fellowship or discussion. You know, they're all performances. They're rigidly controlled. Who can say what is rigidly controlled? They're just charades. They're infomercials, yes. They're infomercials. <laughs> okay, so we've probably talked several dozen more pastors out of continuing their ministries by now, and they're going to go become plumbers. <laughs> and God no, bless no, you, that's we not what we're plumbers. trying to do. We're trying to teach you how to survive in this this, this ecclesiastical chaos. Okay, so let's let's shift into the positive now here. I just have this new sense of of calling to say to pastors out there, you are the real deal because you are the pastor. You are the one who received this call of God and now you are serving at that particular congregation and you know, you you love your people, but you need to teach them what your job is and you need to just disregard the pressures from above. I know it's not always an option, but I think the strength will come from really focusing on what your specific calling and ministry is. And here I'm going to go super duper Augsburg confession and say, pastor's get themselves into trouble if they try to claim any authority except the authority of the word and sacraments. So this is my, my, my positive charge with the negative implication, which is double down and focus your authority on being the one who preaches and teaches the word of God to your community and the one who baptizes, the one who communes, and the one who absolves. Do those things and at least temporarily drop all other authorities that you have or think you have or think you should have or claim to have and pull everything in. I think, I, I suspect that it's the the outward creep to talk about or assert authority over other things like it might be a political issue or um, managing the, the staff or the plant or whatever that tangles pastors up. But I think there needs to be a renewed focus on just those specific tasks that the ministry alone is commissioned with. And therefore you as the pastor alone have to make sure happens because almighty God is expecting you to do it. Well, you know, that is uh, I think a lot of pastors will hear that, what you've said, Sarah, and kind of nod in a kind of a fundamental agreement with the thrust of what you're saying. But then when it becomes practical, does that mean I don't know who gives what to the congregation? Does that mean I don't look over the financial reports? Does that mean I stay out of deliberations on the new roof the church needs? <laughs> and you can go on and on and on. You know, uh, if I'm a pastor and I'm really a kind of the CEO of a voluntary organization and everything that happens in this organization from its building and grounds to its personnel policies uh, uh, to its recruitment and 
and fundraising, all of that falls on my lap. And you're telling me, Sarah, that I should give up authority in those areas to focus on being what? Yeah. Yeah. Who who wants someone who just preaches and baptizes and communes? Like, you don't earn a full-time salary on that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, you know, I, I say this, you know, uh, uh, not as, as an absolute thing, but at least as a temporary experiment, especially, I think, for pastors who have really lost their way and are having severe vocational doubts about the whole thing, is to do this at least temporary retraction of all your other responsibilities to the core responsibilities of word and sacrament, at least for a renewal of your own purpose. And then I think out of that, you can speak from the being the person who is in charge of preaching and teaching the word of God, then you can say, all right, therefore, out of this role, I am also someone who counsels couples who want to marry, and I will marry them. Or therefore, out of that primary ministry, I pay hospital visits and um, comfort the dying and preside over the funerals. And therefore, out of my preaching and teaching responsibility, I can help the congregation discern how to manage its physical property, its personnel, its conflicts, and so forth. But I think unless the whole the whole task, all the tasks of the pastor are really centered on, on the one thing necessary, then they're just, all the other things by definition are going to become more important um, because people just automatically see them as more important. You know, like weddings and funerals and hospital visits are obviously more important than studying the book of Nehemiah or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or like, well, you know, everybody gets baptized or like we have communion every Sunday. So like how special is that you just say the same words every time. You know, it's it's your job as the pastor to make people see that the word and sacraments are the central and defining characteristics of the church. Because if you don't, something else will be, and it's almost certainly going to be bad. So it's it's really more like, a, 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 let me say, it's a matter of judgment, <laughs> is, is applying the judgments of your calling to the whole life of the community. That's what communities need so badly. That's what they need. It's not you imposing it. It's you're giving them people what they don't even know they need so badly. Well, I think you're right there, Sarah. Now, I think we're really getting down to brass tacks here because the let's just entertain a, a counterintuition here. Maybe a whole number of pastors in the last generation have gone into the idea that I'm a uh, psychological counselor, or I'm a, a, a community organizer, or I'm a, a good uh, fundraiser, or I'm, you know, they've gone into all these secular models of voluntary organization leadership kind of ideas. Uh, Maybe they've done all that quite deliberately because they're actually afraid of being a pastor who serves word and sacrament. And maybe they're afraid of that because they've been so badly educated by the seminary training they received uh, that that education has actually disempowered them or paralyzed them. That would be the more charitable reading. Um, The more prophetic reading, I think, would be, uh, as we talked about in Galatians a couple of episodes ago, is because they want to avoid the controversy of Jesus. They want to avoid 
the stumbling block of the cross. They don't want to be persecuted uh, for the, uh, on account of the cross. Uh, all those kinds of fears of the actually controversial nature of the gospel. Uh, and they can have wonderful rationalizations about you know, human well-being and so forth that they're trying to protect in a, quote, pastoral, end quote, way, uh, and so forth and so on. But actually, what's motivating them is a fear of being pigeonholed as a fire and brimstone fundamentalist or some kind of fanatic who actually thinks Christianity might be true. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're very right. And honestly, unless there is some some uh, fire of the gospel in your bones, it's perfectly irrational to be afraid and not want to be that person and not want to be that pastor and to see the 10,000 other useful and urgent things to do for people like you said, psychological counseling or community organizing or fundraising for projects and do them instead. I mean, that's that's not an irrational judgment to make. The, the the question, and I think the problem we're addressing here is how, how poorly even pastors have been catechized, but more importantly, supported by the structures of the church, the congregation below and the denomination above, and, you know, possibly the, the seminaries laterally, to have pastors fully internalize this vocation of judgment, which is the expression of the gospel and the, the working out of the word and sacraments and making a case. And I, I think maybe it just needs to be said, you do have to make the case now that word and sacrament are necessary, useful, central, essential, what your life needs. You have to make that case to people. And maybe that's one of the biggest cultural differences is that is not self-evident the way it used to be. I think probably there's a growing awareness that people need something spiritual or transcendent, but that it would be Christianity particularly that is, is by no means obvious anymore. Yeah, right. And that's, I mean, the whole point of this podcast that we've been doing now for two and a half years is in many ways to equip and inspire demoralized pastors and lay people uh, uh, with the uh, intellectual uh, and theological resources they need to uh, regain their courage uh, to overcome this massive failure of nerve when it comes to the ministry of the gospel. That's what I would say. You know, when it comes to the question of pastoral authority, let's never forget that the authority of the pastor is derivative from the message that, in fact, that they proclaim. And that message is Christ crucified, a stumbling block uh, to Jews and folly to the Greeks, but for us who are being saved, the power of God. Right? So we, we can't authority, the assertion of gospel authority is inherently controversial. And you are going to take up your own cross when you assert the authority of the gospel. It's going to be, especially in our churches, which are so full of all sorts of other models and false ideas and expectations, you're taking on your, uh, taking a, quite a burden on yourself. Now, I don't want to make this sound overwhelming. The walls of Jericho will collapse with a shout uh, when, in fact, we uh, are proceeding in the procession uh, of, of the kingdom of God. 
and we, the ministry will not be without its reward in this cause. But let's not forget that the assertion of authority of a pastor is entirely derivative of and, trans, and should be transparent to the controversial gospel that we preach. And, and the, the gospel himself, Jesus Christ, who has called us to do it, that, that I, I like that you some emphasize so much courage because I don't think that is a virtue that's given much um, uh, airtime anymore as being essential to this calling. What I have observed is that, interestingly, both weekly authoritative pastors and authoritarian pastors have in common a fundamental um, lack of courage in the gospel itself. Um, and so the weak pastor desperately needs other people's approval because the gospel's God's approval is insufficient. And the authoritarian pastor doesn't actually think the gospel can do its own work and therefore has to um, force and demand and control in order to make sure that the right religious yeah. stuff happens. And so it's a, it's important to see that those are are related flaws. They're they're not like a, to be an, a pastor to to be someone who exercises pastoral authority is not to be authoritarian. That it actually is a betrayal of, of your lack of confidence in the gospel. I, I think also, Dad, this I, I'm realizing now I it's we it, as Lutherans we distinguish between the office and the person, and that is a very true and powerful distinction. So just as one example that every pastor can relate to. Um, I, I'm doing premarital counseling for a couple right now, and I'm astonished again, as I've been in, in other kinds of cases, how simply because you're the pastor, people will tell you stuff that they would not tell their closest friends. <laughs> like, like you, you know, you don't know me. Like, you know, we've hardly had any conversations, you know, just like passing church chit chat. And all of a sudden you're hearing stuff like, holy cow, I can't believe, you know, like, but it's because you hold the office and they trust you. So, you know, that, that, um, that gift of the the vocational office is a tremendous thing. And we like to distinguish it from the person, and there are lots of valuable reasons to do that. But I think what I'm realizing now is that if the pastoral ministry, like being a judge, a police officer, a teacher, a doctor, is a vocation of judgments, as you progress in the vocation, those boundary lines are necessarily going to blur. And they need to blur. And you need to bring all of your personal gifts and experiences Experience and history to bear on the vocation on the on the office, and the office is really going to shape and remake you as even an, an individual. I mean, we both know pastors who, by the end of their lives, there is no even when they're retired and no longer active, like their their person has been so formed by this office that it's it, it it's almost not a meaningful distinction between the two anymore. What do you, I mean? That troubles yeah. me a little, and yet I think it has to be true too. What do you think about that? Well, I think I think it's absolutely true. On, on again, I'm, I'm telling stories about my father today. Why not? Uh, because his dying days revealed this so clearly. Uh, he was uh, in a hospital uh, for a number of uh, days prior to being brought home for uh, his final days, and he in his he was sharing a room with a a man who was very angry uh, at the world and at God and. Uh, screaming out blasphemies and so forth. And uh, in his, uh, finally, uh, he told me at, at one point, he, he said to his roommate, 
Who are you complaining to? Do you think the one you're complaining to is perhaps listening to you? Why don't you give that a try? So even uh, in, huh. in his dying days, he sought to minister to an angry uh, person, a fellow, uh, a fellow uh, sick person on their sickbed, on their deathbed. Uh, and in his final days, uh, just before he died, he had these blessed hallucinations. You know, a pastor has the privilege of seeing the faces of people when they come forward to receive communion. It's a very powerful experience. Mm, yes. And yes. Uh, as he lay dying there, he had these wonderful visions of all these people <laughs> that he had communed throughout his many years in the ministry. And he started telling my brothers, you can commune that one. You can commune this one. No, not that one. Don't, don't, don't give any <laughs> communion to that one. <laughs> you know. So yes, did the office form his person? Absolutely it did. And it should, as any vocation, should, should form us, reform us, constantly reform us. Because a vocation is responding personally to the calling of God. How could it not reform us? Right, right. Well, and then you want to make sure that as a pastor, you're really being formed by this calling of God to preach his word and to administer his sacraments and not anything else, because you certainly can be formed by other versions or parodies of that call. Um, but ultimately, um, it's it's not going to be a gift to you or to the people around you if something else is, is forming the center of your pastoral call. So I, we're about at time here. I would just like to, to end with a, a reflection on why we need pastors and local communities at all. I would say I've kind of come ar around to a version of congregationalism, um, which is not a congregationalism of contempt for um, other churches near or far or in the past or in the present, but in the sense that the congregation is, is the primary locus of divine work. Um, and because because it is, there are so many loci of this divine work. That's why we are not isolated congregationalists. But in, but there is every reason to find ways to connect congregations to each other as different local out, outposts of divine work. But I guess because Dad, you and I do so much writing, we both do podcasting. We have all sorts of ways that we communicate about the gospel and how to think about the gospel and how the gospel interacts with the world around us. And you know, this is also a vocation I very, very dearly love. But but after um, a super difficult first ministry, as I've talked about on occasion here, so uh, just so you know, pastors, I don't have any illusions that this is all going to go nice if you just claim your pastoral authority. Sometimes that will um, bring out the wolves more than ever. But um, and now being in a in a congregational setting that brings me a lot of joy, I think I have a renewed appreciation for the importance of articulating the gospel in person and locally. You know, again, I'm thrilled for books. I'm thrilled for podcasts. <laughs> I'm thrilled for the telephone. But there's no substitute for actually being there in person and looking at the faces, at, as you said, at the communion rail or from your pulpits and having the, the conversations on the deathbed or in preparation for marriage and saying, like, this is how the pastor in the congregation is how God actually does the talking to these specific people at this moment in history. And the more I see and grasp this, the more I'm just 
awed at uh, the wonderfulness of a vocation that I have had very mixed feelings about for a long time now. It's It's been a real gift to me. And I just hope to communicate some of that renewed sense of, of purpose to pastors who have been so beaten up, not least of all because so many of them have not been able to see their people face to face for such a long time. Yeah, that I, I quite agree with that. Of course, questions of ecclesiology uh, are not at stake here. Any particular pastor is normally serving word and sacrament to particular local congregations. There may be other forms of word and sacrament ministry, but that's still uh, the uh, de facto norm. And uh, in that sense, I'm totally with you on the congregation being the outpost of God's invading kingdom, uh, where the pastor is responsible uh, in that community for holding it to, to the gospel in which they've been called so that they can fulfill their calling as an outpost of God's uh, new creation. I think that's exactly right. Um, I would just mention here uh, that uh, I just published in a new book edited by Christine Helmer, um, an essay uh, which I gave the subtitle Summons for a New Catechesis for a Time of Despair, which I think uh, kind of captures the, the problematic that we've been addressing here today. And I, I, I use uh, the crypto-theology of Václav Havel, the Czech uh, politician, and his famous essay, The Power of the Powerless, mm -hmm. to talk about what you can do in a cultural situation that is dominated by a soulless, mindless bureaucracy uh, where uh, the... Uh, Ordinary lives of ordinary people are left in a kind of studied contempt. And Havel talks about how you can s simply snap at one point and stop playing the game and just tell the truth <laughs> right there on the ground. And I think that's what congregational life can and should be. It should be die Zona der Freiheit, as the East Germans called the churches during the uh, 1989, the zone of freedom, where people are freed in the gospel to speak the truth. May it be so. Now, that would be authority, wouldn't it? The, the freedom to speak the truth, of course, in love. Of course, yeah. Well, I, I think what it will reveal is how many people are unwilling to speak or hear the truth. And so this pastoral authority will also have conflict in it. But honestly, since you're going to have conflict in a church anyway, I think that's the kind of conflict you want to have. I'm with you, sister. Cho choose that one, one demon over the other seven. <laughs> Speaking as a happy warrior for the last 40 years of my ministry, I say amen <laughs> to that. Okay. Um, yes. And now at the end of your ministry, you alluded at the beginning about your own hard discernment about whether or not you're going to continue some sort of um, ministry call. So did you want to? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm waiting upon the bishop uh, was very sensitive and he listened to my concerns, which are concerns of conscience. I would even dare to say bound conscience. 
and I'm going to see, uh, he said he would work on my requests and see if an accommodation could be found. I'm not sure it can be, uh, and then I'll have to take it from there. But let's just leave it at that because I, I don't want to violate uh, any confidences. Okay, fair enough. Well, from uh, pastor to prophets, next time on the show, we will be talking about the book, person, and story of Jonah. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.